Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sarah Sanders Gardner is the openly autistic designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized Neurodiversity Navigators Program. As director of the program, they design curriculum, teach cohort classes, lead a team of staff, faculty, and peer mentors, and work to support disability inclusion and access across campus. And as founder of Autistic at Work, they also provide workshops and e-learning in neurodiversity cultural responsiveness for corporations and universities. Uh, most recently, they were technical editor for the newly published Neurodiversity for Dummies. Sir Sanders Gardner's talk at Utah Tech University is titled Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. That talk is Tuesday, January 30th at uh, 12 noon in the Dunford Auditorium on the Utah Tech campus. It is, it is part of Utah Tech's trailblazing speaker series. And Sarah Sanders Gardner joins us uh, for the Hour at Access Utah. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Uh, thanks for joining us. A very important uh, topic. Um, so I understand you're a parent of an adult child who works at Microsoft and a rescue dachshund who works as an emotional support animal. So that's wonderful. Um, that is true. <laughs> uh, I understand, uh, I'm reading here, uh, your work in the disability field began in 2001 uh, when, as a newly diagnosed autistic, uh, you served as a parent advocate. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that, getting into this work? Sure, yes. Um, so my, my child was in school at that time in, oh, I don't know, elementary school, some of those ages. And I realized that it was really, really difficult for parents to have a voice at the individual education uh, planning meetings because there's, you know, six people sitting around the table and the parent trying to advocate for their child. And so I um, went and got all the education that I could in how to advocate at those meetings. And I started going to those meetings with parents as a parent advocate so that they would have someone to also speak with them who knew the ropes, understood the laws, understood what their child was entitled to, and how to get it in a non-confrontational manner so that the, um, the relationship between the school and the parent could stay a uh, positive one, and the student could be best served. Uh, so this point, you were newly diagnosed as uh, autistic. What, um, tell me a little bit about that. Before you received a diagnosis, um, what, what was that like? Oh, gosh, before I received a diagnosis, I honestly um, did not know what was, quote-unquote, wrong with me. I always felt different. I had a very difficult time um, Growing up, uh, socializing with other kids, I I had friends, but I also had lots of rocky kinds of relationships. There were situations that happened in elementary school that were just devastating to me. Um, in high school, I wasn't part of the in crowd, although we're all friends on Facebook now. I guess that's a new thing. Um, in college, I had a very rocky experience, and that's one of the things that drives me to do the work that I do today. I just always felt that I was very different from other people, and I didn't know why. I couldn't understand it, and I always felt extremely misunderstood. And it wasn't until my child got a diagnosis, and I started really doing a deep dive into what is autism, that I started to recognize myself amongst all of that information. And I took that to uh, my therapist that I was seeing at the time and um, 
we went through the diagnostic criteria and went through some tests and things, and I came out the other end with an autism diagnosis myself. Uh, so f- uh, for yourself, I guess, or for your child, um, was that comforting? Was that helpful? Was it troublesome to, to receive a diagnosis? <laughs> All of the above, yes. So, um, you know, I went through a lot of stages. At first, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm disabled. Um, and I had never thought of myself that way. And as I, you know, went through thinking about that and meeting more and more um, autistic people, I realized that, of course, I'm still the same person that I've always been. There's nothing different about me. Now that I know what's going on with me, it opens a lot of new doors to um, understanding myself. And I realized that autistic people are amazing and that I had really basically found my family, if you will, and people that understood me and that I understood. And so I went from feeling down and um, kind of depressed about it to actually feeling very excited that I had discovered this um, information about myself and about my child and really about my family. My father was 75 at the time, and he got a diagnosis himself. He uh, heard me reading uh, criteria, diagnostic criteria to my mother, and he said, what are you reading? And I said, "I'm, I'm reading about autism. And he said, you're talking about me. And so he he was a Baptist minister, and he went to the doctor, and he got a diagnosis. And so the last uh, 15 years of their marriage were so much better because he understood himself, and my mother understood him. So it was it was a journey, but it ended up um, being very positive for all of us. Uh, so yeah, understanding could be powerful, right? And then get the maybe the right. Um, well, just I guess just understanding that's that's a big step forward. Yep, exactly. Um, so um, I'm reading from, uh, the, it's very helpful to me to, to kind of uh, wrap my head around this. Uh, you wrote for uh, stairwaytostem.org, uh, I wrote a little article called Autism 101. Um, oh, yes. And, and here you're, you're talking about uh, definitions and diagnosis, um, and, and you say that the tricky side of this, right, maybe the downside of this, uh, that once we get a diagnosis, and uh, maybe that could lead us to viewing autism from a deficit point of view, and that that can be dangerous. You know, that is a really good point, and that's that's kind of the the, the difficulty that's happening in the world today for a lot of different um, identities, right? Where people are looking at the at people who are different from a deficit perspective, and they're thinking what is wrong with them or what is different about them. And that's absolutely true of autism and other neurodivergent identities such as ADHD, dyslexia, et cetera, where especially in K through 12 or, you know, younger years, um, but even as we um, age and go to college and then into the workplace, people are looking at what is different about us, what do we do differently, culturally differently, how can we be fixed, quote unquote, rather than how can we leverage our strengths and make the world accessible and accepting to us so that we can bring our best selves to education, to the workplace, and use the um, insights and different ways of thinking that we have. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely hit the nail on the head. That deficit thinking is a big problem in the uh, neurodivergent community and in other communities as well. 
so what about definition and, and diagnosis? Uh, has that has that changed over time? It, it, it absolutely has changed over time. I would say the definition of neurodiversity and neurodivergent has stayed pretty stable. That word um, neurodiversity uh, started back in the 1990s, um, <clears throat> began in the um, autistic community in you know, our online communications where people started talking about it as related to biodiversity, right, where you need all the different kinds of uh, creatures living in one climate to keep that climate uh, stable and thriving. Um, the community started talking about neurodiversity. You need all the different kinds of minds in humanity to keep it thriving and moving forward. And so that term neurodiversity, that stayed the same. Neurodivergent was a word that came along probably about 10 years later. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, and that was coined by a person, um, Kasiana Simasu, living in the United States, to describe specifically the people whose brains diverge from that cultural norm. And that word has that word has stayed pretty stable too. Now, as far as the diagnosis, though, that has changed. Um, used to be lots of different diagnoses. Um, there was Asperger's. There was. Um, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. There were a lot of other things. Now, in 2015, those were all wrapped under the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And so it's still fairly much diagnosed the same way. They did add sensory processing into it in 2015, fortunately. But it, that has changed a little bit over time, yes. Uh, I want to talk about um, uh, myths. You have this in your article here. Um, you say one of the biggest myths about autism is that it's a purely social disorder. <laughs> yes, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, if I could change one myth about autism, that would be it, because I see my colleagues across the country at other colleges focusing on this social aspect, and that really is not the most difficult thing for autistic people, it is difficult, of course, but focusing on us is not the way to fix it. Focusing on others around us, again, making things accessible for us, is how to fix that problem or how to support us in that problem, helping people understand that communication is a two-way street. However, autistic people, neurodivergent people have many other things that we struggle with and need access for. And so when you think about a disability, let's say you think about a wheelchair user, they need access, right? They need um, uh, ramps, they need elevators, they need doors that will open for them, et cetera. Neurodivergence, aut autism, ADHD, dyslexia is no different when the world is not set up for the way you think and the way you work and the way you complete your um, assignments or your job tasks you need accommodations or accessibility features that will support you in that work. And when we don't have those things, it takes us too much effort. We get exhausted. We maybe can't do things on time or to our best effort. And so that's really where the um, focus needs to be on making things more accessible and educating the community that commu communicating with us falls on them just as much as it falls on us. Mm. 
You have a list of uh, possible co-occurring features, which include anxiety and depression, uh, also sleep disorders, you know, some other things you may not think about. Yes. As uh, you know, as typical. Um, so some other myths, the Asperger's genius or the autistic savant. <laughs> yeah, that really is, that really is a myth. And, and what is true is that in autism and in neurodivergence overall, there is a slightly higher number of uh, people with um, high intelligence than in the general population, but not enough that, like, we're all super intelligent, right? Um, we're not. Some of us are. Some of us aren't. We've, we fall pretty close to the general population in intelligence levels. However, we do, as a group, not every single individual, love to delve deeply into subjects of interest. And so when we are intensely interested in something, we will learn a lot about it, which then may come across as genius, but really it's just we've learned a lot. We've spent our 10,000 hours, if you will, learning about a subject, and so we, we seem rather intelligent in that area. Mm. Uh, another myth, um, that autistic people uh, don't have feelings. So, yeah, that, that definitely is a myth, and, and what is true about that is we absolutely have feelings, of course. Um, we are human beings, and, and sometimes we're made to feel that we aren't. We may show our feelings in a culturally different way than is expected, and I think that that's where that myth comes from. Um, it's so difficult for a neurotypical, and that's a person who's not autistic or not um, neurodivergent, to understand that there is more than one way to do something, to emote something, to communicate something. And so when we show our emotions in a way that's different from what they expect, they assume we don't have emotions. And so, you know, it, it, we definitely have them. We just show them very differently. And, um, you know, you have to get to know us to find out what we're feeling and, and what we're thinking. Uh, I guess one more uh, myth here, uh, meltdowns and violence. Uh, I guess maybe people that assume the autistic person is, is going to be more prone to maybe violence, meltdowns. Yeah, and actually the research says that that's absolutely not true, that um, especially when we're thinking about violence, that uh, neurodivergent people, autistic people, are actually less prone to some of these violent acts that we're thinking about. You know, when we think about um the, the really violent things like school shootings, et cetera, they often, people often turn to thinking, oh, were they autistic? Were they neurodivergent? Um, but the research says that that's very unlikely to be true. What has happened is that um, a large group of people talk about their children, and, you know, parents definitely are upset about their children, um, having difficulty maintaining their emotions. And a lot of that goes back to the children being in inaccessible environments or in sensory environments that don't suit their needs. And so the child has a really hard time managing their uh, sensory and their emotions in those environments. And so there's so much work to be done in that area. I A lot of work has been done. Things are getting better. I see a lot less of these meltdowns showing up. Um, but what is true is that if you think about how you managed your emotions when you were 10 years old and how you manage them now, there's a vast difference in that. And the same thing is true for 
autistic and neurodivergent people, we grow and learn how to manage our emotions as well. And so while I cannot say that no autistic person is going to melt down at college or in the office, um, I also can't say that no typical person is going to do that either. People do sometimes lose their cool, but it's, it's not uh, statistically significant that more autistic people will when they are in the right environment with the correct accessibility. Um, I'll do this. Uh, uh, we have some time. I'll, I'll do this uh, last uh, myth you list in this article, a uh, theory of mind. And so the, this myth uh, states that autistic people lack a theory of mind or are unable to imagine what others are thinking. That, that's, that's a myth, right? <sighs> that is that is. Absolutely, myth that has been um, rebutted by uh, multiple research studies at this point. Um, that started, and it, it still is perpetuated. What what that is alluding to is that autistic people think like autistic people, so we understand each other. But the flip side of that is true as well: is that neurotypical people think like neurotypical people, and they understand each other. The two groups don't understand the other group so well. So when the original theory of mind, which is Simon Baron Cohen, says that we don't have a theory of mind, we can't understand other people, when he did that, he didn't take into account that he was measuring apples and oranges. Um, so... Now, when you do research into do autistic people understand what autistic people know, yes, they do. Um, do neurodivergent people understand what neurodivergent people know? Yes, they do. Do neurotypical people understand what autistic people know? Nope, they sure don't. So, it's a, again, communication is a two-way street. Understanding people is a two-way street. There's more to be done in that area. But when we're little... It's a developmental delay, so five-year-olds maybe have a harder time understanding um, theory of mind. But as we grow, we learn how to understand others. Let's take a brief break. We'll come back. Much more to talk about. Sarah Sanders Gardner is our guest. Uh, they're the uh, open autistic designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized neurodiversity navigators uh, program and founder of Autistic at Work. Uh, where they provide workshops and e-learning in neurodiversity cultural responsiveness for corporations and universities. Most recently, they were technical editor for the newly published Neurodiversity for Dummies. And Sarah Sanders Gardner's talk at Utah Tech University is titled Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. And the talk is Tuesday, January 30th, 12 noon, in the Dunford Auditorium on the Utah Tech campus as part of Utah Tech's Trailblazing Speaker Series. And we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sarah Sanders Gardner, uh, designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized neurodiversity navigators program and founder of Autistic at Work. Um, and Sarah Sanders Gardner will give a talk at Utah Tech University on Tuesday, January 30th, 12 noon, Dunford Auditorium on the Utah Tech campus. It's part of Utah Tech's Trailblazing Speaker Series, and the title of the talk, Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. Uh, so Sarah Sanders Gardner, I want to have you talk about uh, thinking about autism as a culture. Uh, you're advocating this, so uh, uh, talk about this a little bit. 
that is a great question. Um, a lot of times when people interact with someone who comes from a different culture, it's easier for them to understand why the person may have different uh, behaviors, different communication. And so when you think about how autistic people and by extension uh, other neurodivergent people behave and communicate, complete their work, um, uh, act on the job, et cetera, it's easier to understand why we may communicate differently. Let's just take a very small piece like eye contact, for example. Now, it is a myth that we don't all make eye contact. Many of us have no problem with eye contact. However, some autistic people can pay attention better when they are looking away rather than when they're looking directly at the person. So eye contact is a good example of this because many cultures, as you know, have different rules than the or cultural expectations than the United States around making eye contact. So, for example, our international students, many of them at the college, they don't look their professors directly in the eye because they, in their culture, that's rude to look at your professor directly in the eye. And so, similarly, autistic people have different cultural behaviors than is expected in this culture. And so when we look at autism as a culture and neurodiversity as neurodivergence as a culture, we can start to understand that the ways that we are communicating and behaving are not rude or wrong or um, deliberately uh, bad. They are simply a different way of interacting and behaving and communicating. Uh, so uh, maybe give us some tips uh, how best to communicate uh, across these, this, these cultures. So that's definitely going to be a big part of my talk um, on Tuesday. But my, my best quick tip is get to know the person. Ask questions about things you don't understand. The, I would say the number one thing I see far too often, well, there's two things. One is making assumptions about what the person means or is trying to say or what their subtext is beneath what they're saying. Um, I see neurotypical people doing this all the time. They assume that the other person is trying to say something that they are likely not trying to say. And so asking questions, trying to really understand rather than assuming that you know. And then um, the other one is simply just getting to know the person and um, finding out what's going on with them rather than uh, writing them off because they act differently. I, I experienced this in a recent meeting where a student uh, spoke up and was trying to get his point across. And because the person who was facilitating the meeting didn't understand what they said, the person just said, okay, and moved on rather than trying to clarify what they meant. And that happens a lot where people just don't understand and they just move on. And so trying to get clarification is a really important thing. Mm. Um, in this article, uh, Autism 101, um, you talk about ableism. What, can you define that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can try to define it briefly. Mm -hmm. So ableism is... Um, really at the root of all um, isms where 
many, 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 many years ago, people started to establish that people with differences were less than or um, not good or should be uh, shunned or, you know, not included, et cetera. And that started a long time ago, uh, back when uh, so-called, I'm going to say so-called scientists would, uh, they did something called, I'm going to say phrenology, but I could be wrong about that word, where they, they took pictures of people's faces and they decided what their intelligence was and their ability to work based on their nose shape and their forehead shape. And, you know, the straighter your nose was, the better you were and the more included you would be. And and they did that with um, skin color later and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so ableism is simply... Um, Oh gosh, I don't, I don't even know if I can say it simply, but it's putting someone down because they um, do not do things the same way that you do or um, treating them as less than. There's all sorts of ableism that goes on, and I'm sorry I'm having a hard time um it's such a big topic, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's 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 really wrapped into treating people who do not perform the same way, do not perform to high levels, do not have an output. Um, all sorts of different things are wrapped up in ableism. Mm. So just putting yourself above someone and putting them down because of a perceived disability or disability. Um, can be ableism, and there's many, many things. And I, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm kind of stumbling uh, over those words. No, that's, that's I'll talk more about that on Tuesday, though. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, uh, uh, really, I just want to read this paragraph from the article because it really, uh, uh, really illustrated, illustrated this very well for me. Um, you say uh, ableism can take the form of uh, microaggression, the form of quote unquote compliments. And I, I, as, mm-hmm. I, as I read through these, I'm thinking, have I ever done this? I hope I haven't. Anyway, um, compl- quote-unquote compliments uh, to a neurodivergent persons, uh, such as, you don't seem autistic to me, or you must be high-functioning, <laughs> or even, you're so inspiring. Um, it, it, you know, that's kind of a subtle form, or maybe not so subtle form, of ableism. Yes. Um. So I want to talk a little bit about your work there at uh, at, at Bellevue, um, the Neurodiversity Navigators Program. Uh, maybe tell me a little bit about uh, uh, you know s- some of the curriculum, uh, you know some of the programs that you you do there. Yeah, sure. Um, I designed and developed that program twelve years ago now, and we. We decided to do this program because of the kind of rocky experience that many autistic students have at college where they do well for one quarter and then they kind of have a bad quarter. They may go away. They may come back. And so we wanted to see if we could even that out. And so we started off with having peer mentors for the students and meetings where we got together and talked about different topics. And rather quickly, the students said, we would like to get college credit for these meetings. So I designed a series of courses where for the first year, they would learn about their strengths in four areas, self-advocacy, executive functioning, self-regulation, and social interaction. Not social skills, but how they interact with others. 
And so the first year, they have curriculum on those four topics, and they really delve into what are their strengths in those areas and how can they leverage those strengths to meet their academic and eventually their um, career goals. And then the second year, they move into uh, working more on their careers and what are their career strengths and how can they create an online presence, what communities do they want to be connected to, how might they network, et cetera. Um, so that is the educational piece of it. They do still have peer mentors that we hire from nearby universities, and these are students who are juniors or seniors who are studying to be psychologists, occupational therapists, um, uh, physical therapists. And the cool thing about that is those students from other universities are getting an invaluable education in a different way of working with neurodivergent students where they're learning to focus on strengths rather than deficits. And they're getting this rare opportunity to work one-on-one over a full school year with many different students. And so it's just, it's a really wonderful way the program works. And the outcomes have been amazing where we have a 90% retention rate. Um, Our students as a group are experiencing, I should say, earning a 3.0 average, GPA average across all three quarters, and they're completing 85% or more of the courses that they attempt. So it's been really, really successful, and our students and, of course, their families are very pleased. Uh, Temple Grandin talks about uh, how uh, she recounts her experiences. Uh, this is, you know, uh, a while ago, but pretty spectacularly bad experiences in school, right? Um, and and points out that we may still be um, not tapping into the talents of uh, of neurodivergent uh, people. Uh, do you think we're making progress? You know, I think we're making pockets of progress, and I think that the the thing that really needs to change are the individual um, attitudes and understandings of the colleagues and um, co-students, of of all the individual people who work with and go to school with neurodivergent people who still don't quite understand that being different is okay. And it doesn't mean that we can't do the work. It just means that we interact with the world differently. And so, you know, Temple's 100% correct. The companies are trying really hard, but I think they're missing the mark in the way that their um, coworkers, colleagues are being educated about these differences is still very deficit-based and is not really getting to the root of where the problem is. Um, Let's take another brief break. We'll come back with the final segment to Sarah Sanders Gardner, who is designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized Neurodiversity Navigators Program and founder of Autistic at Work. Uh, After break, I want to get into talking about uh, that. and uh, most recently, they were technical editor for the newly published Neurodiversity for Dummies. And Sarah Sanders Gardner is uh, coming to Utah Tech University next week, Tuesday, 12 noon, Dunford Auditorium at uh, the Utah Tech campus. Uh, and they'll be giving a talk 
called Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. It's part of Utah Tech's Trailblazing Speaker Series. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Sarah Sanders Gardner, and they'll be giving a talk at Utah Tech University on Tuesday, January 30th, 12 noon, Dunford Auditorium on the Utah Tech campus, uh, called Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. That talk is part of the Utah Tech's Trailblazing Speaker Series. Sir Sanders Gardner is designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized Neurodiversity Navigators Program and founder of Autistic at Work. And uh, Sir Sanders Gardner, that's where I want to have you talk a little bit about this um, neurodivergent colleagues, right? Hiring autistic uh, folks, uh, helping them be successful at work. Uh, tell me, uh, how did you come to found Autistic at Work? So I founded Autistic at Work um, through my work with Microsoft Corporation. Um, I have been their trainer since they started their autistic um, autism at work, um, sorry, their autism inclusive hiring program, uh, gosh, eight years ago, and then they changed it to neurodiversity hiring program. I was their trainer when they started that program to train colleagues and managers and so as I, as I was doing that, I was like, oh, other corporations need this too. And so I um, incorporated into Autistic at Work. Um, I'm the autistic person in the Autistic at Work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I go to corporations, um, colleges, other institutions, and train them in how to look for strengths and not deficits, how to take differences in uh, interviewing into account and not uh, not be prejudiced against or not be ableist against a neurodivergent um, uh, applicant. And so that's, that's how it got started, and it's going really well. I'm hoping that I can retire and, and just do that in a few years. So that's, that's how I got started with it. Um, what's, what was your experience? Did you encounter problems in the, in the workplace? Uh, again, and and for, for a while you didn't have a diagnosis, right? Right. For a long time, I didn't have a diagnosis. And I will say, um, I definitely had a lot of success in the workplace and then, a, a, and then areas where I just couldn't understand why certain things happened and so um, I always got promoted pretty quickly, and and then there would be things about my job that I, I just didn't understand or couldn't do, and I didn't know what to do about that. Um, I only ever got fired once, and I, ne- I still to this day don't know what that was about, uh, but I always did really well at work. I didn't have friends at work necessarily. Um, and when I got into a position where I was the national sales director at a Yellow Pages company, so now you know how old I am. I used to work for the Yellow Pages. Um, then I really fell apart because I didn't, making those phone calls across the nation to talk to different people was beyond my uh, capabilities at that time. Uh, I was a telephone operator. That'll tell you how old I am. So, <laughs> which was, was kind of a fun job. Of course, that's that's yes. a very antiquated job now. Um, what are the 
What are the issues that are brought up in these workshops the most, the, the kind of the frequently asked questions or issues that, that people are encountering in the workplace that you help them with? Well, so, you know, it really kind of depends. Um, but the one thing in the interview process that I think a lot of people don't understand is many of us will answer the question that we're asked, and we don't necessarily give a lot more frills and information. And, you know, when you, when you conduct an interview, you're used to the person going on and on and on with lots of information. And many of us do not do that. We simply answer the question. And so asking follow-up questions to get more information is very important and not assuming that we don't care or we don't know just because we're brief and to the point. Um, and that carries over into the workplace as well, because, again, not all of us, but many of us, can be very direct. I've had to really learn that um, it hurts people's feelings when I say, this isn't right. And I have to, you know, back up and say, oh, you know, I, I, I think that um, the attachment didn't come through rather than you forgot the attachment. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I have to assume that they did attach it and it just didn't happen. Um, This kind of pretending that people do, um, that many neurodivergent people don't, just don't do, because why? Um, So learning to not take offense at the truth, I think, is probably one of the most important things for colleagues to learn. Mm. Uh, I want to talk about the language we use. Um, uh, w- you know, one question um, I think people have is, you know, should I call you autistic? I've been doing it through the program, so I hope it's okay. But, uh, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> what what's the rule there? Yeah. So, um, a lot of people think that the rule is that you should say person with autism, and you'll see that quite a bit. You'll see it in the media. You'll see it in um, research papers. And that used to be the rule many, many years ago that you should use person-first language, so person with a disability. And in 2015, um, the American Psychological Association put out a style guide that said, first of all, you should use both in media and articles and research. And then also you should ask the disabled person or the person with a disability, which they prefer, because many people like myself prefer identity-first language, which is to say I'm autistic, not a person with autism, because autism is part of my identity. It's one of the many identities that I have, and it's not an add-on to me. So I don't say I'm a person with non-binariness, right? I say I'm non-binary. And so when, to me, when you say I'm a person with autism, you are making autism a bad thing that you don't want to associate with me as part of my identity. And so the rule is that you ask the person or you listen to the person as you've done today using the terminology that they use. Um, and then when you don't know um, you're doing a talk or something, you just use both. Mm. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, as, as you probably well know, there are efforts around the U.S., including here in Utah, by the legislature and the governor, to move away from diversity, equity, and inclusion language. Um, how do you see those efforts as impacting the work uh, you and others are doing around neurodiversity? I think that 
everyone will need to pivot a bit and understand that although the laws around diversity, equity, and inclusion may be changing, it doesn't change the laws against discrimination. And so we still aren't allowed to discriminate against people. So we will still need to adjust our hiring practices, to adjust our work practices, so that we are not discriminating against people. And so I think that we do need to focus on equity and inclusion and diversity in a different way if we're not allowed, quote unquote, to call it diversity, equity, inclusion. I, I see this more as a language shift than in a um, than a focus shift because people will still need to be learning how to take the perspective of other people and not judge them on these superficial cultural uh, ways of being in the world that do not affect their ability to do their job or get to school, but are merely different ways of being in the world. Well, very, very interesting, very helpful uh, discussion today. We reached the end of the time here. Sarah Sanders Gardner uh, is designer and developer of Bellevue College's nationally recognized neurodiversity navigators program and founder of Autistic at Work. And uh, most recently, they were technical editor of newly published Neurodiversity for Dummies. And Sarah Sanders Gardner is uh, coming to Utah. Uh, Their talk at Utah Tech University is titled Change the World Around You, Embracing Neurodiversity. And that is Tuesday, January 30th, 12 noon in the Dunford Auditorium on the Utah Tech campus. It's part of Utah Tech's trailblazing speaker series. Sarah Sanders Gardner, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.